If you're comfortable doing so, why don't you just turn to the person in front of you next to you or behind you and just say, the Lord's been faithful to me. The Lord's been good. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Don and choir, musicians. Appreciate your, your commitment to lead us in worship. If you brought your Bible, and I hope that you did, uh, I'm kind of old school. I, I'm not much on using the scriptures out of the cell phone. In fact, when I see people with their cell phones in church, it always makes me think they're playing games or texting or doing something else. So if you don't want the preacher to think bad of you, you'd probably be better off bringing your Bible. But I know there's different ways, but I just, I just still something to me special about bringing your Bible to church with you and being able to hold it in your lap. And, and uh, so uh, I invite you to open your Bible with me to John 4 and John 4. And as you're doing that, I uh, received a phone call on Friday from a friend of mine, a friend of Mindy and I. Uh, he pastors a church in Scottsboro, uh, Kentucky, and we, we became friends in college, and he called to tell me that there was another friend that we had in college, and he passed away suddenly on uh, Thursday night with a heart attack. His name was Daryl. We called him Big Dog. He was a big guy from Clifty, Kentucky, and, and uh, he was actually in our wedding when Mindy and I got married. He, he and I were just dear, dear friends, and... And uh, he passed away suddenly. And you've had that experience, haven't you, where family member, friend, someone, um, when they just pass unexpectedly, and there's some shock initially when you, when you hear those kind of things, and you begin to realize that life is moving along, and there's some sadness. But the greater effect is the realization that James 4 is true, that the brevity of life is a fact that life is swift, it's like a vapor, and, and you begin to also think about the importance of time. There's a couple of verses that I want to read to you, uh, it's from Ephesians 5, because it kind of makes this point where Paul says, and think about it because of the brevity of life and because of the um, uncertainty of life, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, See then that you walk circumspectly, or some of your Bibles may say walk in wisdom. See then you walk circumspectly or in wisdom, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. Making the most of time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what is the will of the Lord. Eliminate three things, really. Eliminate foolishness. Um, can you think back in a time in your history, in your life, where you kind of lived foolishly? And having met Christ, there's been a change. You and I know family members and friends and co-workers who live foolishly. Paul says eliminate foolish living, careless living. Understand the will of the Lord which is revealed to us through his word. And then maximize your time. Redeem the time. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 says it is required of stewards us as followers of Christ. It is required of us by God as stewards that we be found faithful, which certainly includes how we use time. With that in mind, I want to speak to you this morning as we start a new year together. It's kind of going to be the theme of my life this year. Kind of, I'm not a big resolution guy, but there are certain things that I think about as we start a new year. And I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of urgency. Urgency. What is, what is urgency? What comes to mind when you think about something being urgent or urgency? Well, it is a quality of being determined to be swift, to be swift, to take action without delay. It's urgent. It's pressing. 
And so it needs attention. For me, living with urgency means I'm going to devote my life to recognizing what is it that God wants me to do and by his grace devote myself or to focus on getting it done. Getting it done. And I've over the years learned that seldom, very seldom, do the, is it that the most important things in life are the most urgent. Have you found that to be true? The most important things in life are seldom ever the most urgent. In fact, if we're not careful, instead of being spiritually deliberate, we can allow the tyranny of the urgent, always putting out fires, reacting, responding to the immediate to keep us away from what's most important. The tyranny of the urgent keeping us from what's most important. In John chapter 4, if you have your Bible, there's two major sections to this chapter. The first section that we're going to consider from this text, Jesus is focusing on Samaritans. All right? So I want you to think about two sections to John 4. Jesus focuses on Samaritans, and we're going to see he interacts with a Samaritan woman, and then he also interacts with the community, the people, these Samaritans from a little town called Sychar in that Samaritan region. So the first section, Jesus is interacting, focusing on Samaritans. And then the second section of John 4, which is sandwiched in the middle, Jesus is interacting with his disciples. And so with your Bible open, read with me, starting the, with the middle section, John chapter 4, because this is where I want us to really focus most of our application this morning as we consider the subject of urgency. But John chapter 4, uh, Jesus is interacting with his disciples, and as we read, I want you, if you have a pen, to circle verse 34 and 35. This is gonna, where we're going to focus most of our application and we'll do that at the end after we go through the text. John 4, verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Marveled that he talked with a woman, a Samaritan woman. Yet no one said or asked him, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, to the rest of the community, verse 29, come, it's an invitation, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And in the original language, it's not it's less of a question. Uh, grammatically, it is in a question form, but it's more of a declaration. Could this be the Christ? She, she knew that he was. Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, teacher, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat. Jesus said to them, probably overhearing the question, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. In other words, we're all working together. God's at work. Some sow, some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. We're all working together. 
by his grace. I want us to examine this first section where Jesus is interacting with Samaritans and there is an opening and a closing scene to the chapter. And so properly in order to really understand this dialogue that Jesus has with his disciples, which is the second section, I want to go back and just kind of set the context, the setting for Jesus's interaction with these Samaritans. And so with your Bible open, the first really scene of this first section is in verses 3 through 26. And so with your Bible open, if you want to follow with me, let's just quickly go through this. Jesus interacts with this Samaritan woman. And there's some great insights here on personal evangelism. How did Jesus engage people in order to share who he was can provide us some insights on how you and I can engage with people also to share Christ with them. So Jesus interacts with this woman. Notice in verse 3, it says, he left Judea and headed to Galilee. Do you see that? He and the disciples. So got a map out, began to do a little research. And so from the southern part of Judea, if you travel north to Galilee, it is a 60-mile trek. 60 miles. When is the last time any of you or I went on a 60-mile hike? I don't think I've ever done that. 60 miles. Considerable physical feet. And in order to travel from Judea in the south, north to the region of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, sandwiched in the middle between those two points is this region of Samaria. So a straight line from the south, north, from Judea to Galilee, a straight line takes you through the region of Samaria. And this is a very important point of the text if you're going to understand the interaction that Jesus has with the disciples. Historically, if you go back, you understand that there was a rift, to put it mildly, between Um, Orthodox Jews of the south that lived in the region of Jerusalem in the temple and then Jews to the north in Samaria. And so in the northern area where Samaritans were, they were Jewish, but the Jews in the south considered these Jews to the north in that middle region of Samaria, they were considered unclean. They viewed them with spiritual disdain. It would not have been an exaggeration to say that the disdain would be better described as hatred. And the Samaritans in that region of Samaria felt the same way towards the Jews to the south. And the reason for that disdain went back historically because you remember there was two two kingdoms of God's people, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And if you remember historically, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. And as the Assyrians took off many of the Jewish people in the north, they took them back off into Assyria, to Susa, some other places there. And then the Assyrians sent some of their own people, these Gentiles, to go back and to live into the northern kingdom. And when these Gentiles came back into the northern kingdom, the Jews, that some of them that were still left, they began to work together and live together and they began to intermarry. And some of the Gentile beliefs about God and idolatry and pagan gods began to infiltrate the Jews that were still left behind in the north. And as a result, over a period of time, exactly what God warned them what happened is that their idolatry, their views, their beliefs, their faith will begin to intermingle with yours. And so the Jews that were still living in the southern kingdom over a period of 130, 40 years saw all of this happening. And so they begin to view them as spiritually beneath them. They were pagan, idolatrous Jews. And so they begin to despise them. And this conflict, this view and this attitude towards one another over time begin to increase. And then what happened 
Later, the southern kingdom falls to the Babylonians. And those southern Jews eventually get taken back off into Babylonia. And then when the Persians take over, Cyrus lets those Jews, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, he lets them go back to Jerusalem. And then the rift between these Jews and those get worse because when the Jews go back to Jerusalem, to the southern part, they begin to do what? They begin to rebuild the temple, reestablish worship. They reestablish the walls. They reestablish the priesthood. They start offering sacrifices of worship again. And so it just led further. We're the ones who really worship God. We're in Jerusalem. We're, we're rebuilding the temple. And we're worshiping God the way he's supposed to be worshiped. And those Jews... Still up in the Samaria, they've intermarried, interfacing, you know, they're, they're less than us, beneath us. And so that's kind of the historical background between the rift between these two groups. Point is, no devout Jew in the South in Jesus' day, if they traveled from Judea to the northern part of Galilee, having Samaria, that region in between, no Jew would have traveled through Samaria. In fact, some of you know the Bible. What did they do? They would go around it, and they would act, add another 20 to 30 miles of their hike, of their trek, to avoid putting their feet down anywhere in Samaria. It was defiled. Those Samaritans are dogs. They're unclean, but not Jesus. The Bible is very clear that Jesus and the disciples, instead of going around Samaria, they go right smack through the middle, right into Samaritan territory, something totally unheard of. Jesus often did things like that, didn't he? Went against the norms, violated their traditions, not to be a rebel, but because he understood and did things for spiritual purposes, for kingdom purposes. And in verse 5, when Jesus arrived with his disciples in Samaria, he comes to a little Samaritan city, a little town called Sychar. It was a historical landmark. It was the place of Jacob's well. And so in verse 6, it says that Jesus is tired. He's weary. He's halfway there. He's walked 30 miles in the heat without air conditioning. 30 miles in the heat. And upon his arrival, he's pretty spent, physically exhausted. It's the sixth hour. It's noon. This probably wasn't, probably took a day, a couple days to make this trek. And the Bible says in verse 6, he sat down next to the well while his disciples leave him, go into the city to find a food vendor to bring back lunch. And then one of the most expensive, Famous exchanges in the New Testament occurs between Jesus and this Samaritan, this woman. And while Jesus is resting, seated next to the well, this lady appears without any interaction. She goes to Jacob's well and either by hand with a bucket, let down the rope into the well, or if there was a crank, she lowers the bucket down into the well to draw up some water. Jesus sitting, watching her next to the well, breaks the ice and asks her for a favor. Ma'am, if it's not too much trouble, since you're already up, would you think about giving me a drink? Verse 9, the woman is startled. Are you talking to me? Uh... You know I'm from here, right? I'm a Samaritan. And I can see you're a Jew from the south by the way that you're dressed. And did you just ask me to give you a drink? And if you did, you understand, sir, that this is entirely inappropriate. Look at Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus said to her, Ma'am, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What does Jesus say to her? He says, ma'am, if you knew who I am and if you knew what God could do in your life, 
you would have asked of me to give you a drink, and the drink that I would give you would be one of living water. She doesn't understand what he's talking about, right? Because she asks, how? Ah, what are you talking about? This is a deep well. This is Jacob's well. You have no bucket. You have no rope. You have nothing to draw with. How would you give me water? This, this well has been in our family for centuries. It's Jacob's well, and there's no other well like it anywhere around. Nothing else compares to this well. Where would you get this living water? And Jesus interacts with her. He's intentional, right? He's living on mission. We've been talking about that every day, living on mission, led by the Spirit to engage people, all types of people, to seize every moment, every opportunity to share Christ, to share the gospel. Do you have a desire to live like that? Would you say that that's on your mind every morning today? As I go to work, I want to be salt. I want to be light. I want to have influence. I want to do more than just go to work today, do my job and make a paycheck, that there's a greater purpose behind what I do every day. I'm living on mission for God. Jason Blackburn and I, this week, went out to lunch down to Two Sisters. It's become a favorite spot. And as we, after we ate, and there's, there's a lot of folks in this church go in and out of Two Sisters. <laughs> little diner there, and I just kind of like it in there. And It's a great pay, place to talk to people and meet people. And as Jason and I were leaving the diner, so we walked up to the front to the counter. There was this guy standing there, and he had just come in, and he, he was, I just, our eyes met. He was kind of looking at me, and so I was kind of looking at me, him, and the thing I always think, this is probably a church member that I don't know, so I better be friendly. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be rude and unfriendly. <laughs> so uh, he, he looked at me, and I looked at him, and, and, uh, and he said, uh, do I know you? And again, I thought maybe he was a church member. I said, well, I don't know. You look familiar. Uh, what do you do? Where do you work? And so he told me his name, what he did, where he worked. And, and uh, he said, what do you do? Where do you work? And I said, well, I work up a, a church here in town. And uh, I'm always, I try not to tell people I'm a preacher, a pastor, because then they start acting weird. <laughs> and, he, and he said, well, what do you do? I said, well, and then when I said, I'm the pastor. And he said, oh, and. And, uh, and I said, well, hey, uh, Pastor, where, where do you go to church? You, you from here? Do you, you go somewhere? You connected? And he said, well, I used to go to so, and, and I'm not going to tell you where I used to go. But he named another church here in town that he used to go to. And I said, well, do you go anywhere now? And he, he said, no, no. He said, what's the name of your church? I said, well, it's Hillcrest Baptist Church. He said, where is that? I said, it's next to George's. Everybody knows where George's is. And, so just right up the street and the liquor store. So if you know where George is the liquor store, you, you know where the church is. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. I said, well, hey, I, let me invite you. Why don't, why don't you come connect with us? And uh, I don't mean, he didn't say too much, but he was receptive. And, uh, and then I said, you know, I, I said, I, I just, I just kind of think of myself as a coach. I'm always recruiting, always looking for good prospects. And I said to him, I said, you look like you'd be a pretty good prospect for our church. Why don't you come? Be with us and just kind of smiled. And he smiled. And, uh, and then, uh, and I said, seriously, why don't, why don't you come if you're looking for a place? And, uh, and so he went and sat out. And then as I was paying the bill, after we went out, I just turned to that lady and, and it, and I thought, well, maybe to make this invitation stick or get his attention a little more, I just handed the lady at the counter and I said, see that guy over there? He was by himself. And she said, yeah. I said, well, I won't pay for his lunch. And so my thought was when he got ready to pay his bill, maybe he would think more about the invitation to come to church and left. He might be here this morning. I don't know. <laughs> You're here. Stand up wherever you are. <laughs> so, so, what, what's the point in telling the story? I'm just telling you there's all kinds of opportunities to talk to people, to invite them to church. You know, maybe if that we were one-on-one, -on -one, might have gone, gotten to go along, uh, gotten to go, go a little bit deeper and say, maybe ask him his story. You know, did something happen? Did you get hurt? Church, you know, it's a lot of times people, the reason they quit going to church is because they get hurt. You know, 
Um, and so there's all kinds of, but, but it was a, at least an attempt, always an attempt to try to share Christ. The point is Jesus was living on mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve, always looking for opportunities. And in verses 13 and 14, Jesus answers the woman's questions. He said, ma'am, I, I can provide you with a different kind of water. A kind of water that once you taste it, it will quench. It will satisfy your thirst forever. You'll never thirst again. It's a source of water, a source of refreshment that's far greater than the water that you will get from this well. It's a fountain. He says it's a fountain providing everlasting life. And she says, Mr., I don't really know who you are. But if your offer is still available, I'd like to have some of that kind of water. Sounds pretty good. Then to help the woman understand who he is, he shifts the conversation. He goes a little deeper and he says, why don't you go call your husband? And she said, I don't, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five and the guy you're living with is not your husband. He shifts. He's getting more pointed. Why? He's trying to help her to understand who he is. And she said, sir, I, there's something special about you. I think you're a prophet. <laughs> Jesus is communicating to her, I know everything about you. And in verse 19, his approach works. For the woman says to him in verse 19, I'm thinking, I'm guessing you're a prophet. The prophets called us to repent of our sins and to worship. And my father and my grandfather taught us here in Samaria that the proper place to worship was in Shechem. And then later they told us that the proper place to worship was here in Samaria. And so that you, if you know historically, right, that's what happened. They said instead of, instead of going back to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, they set up their own temple, their own worship place, which just contributed more and more why the Jews of the South despised and looked down on them and their worship and their lifestyle. And then she asked Jesus, she says, what's your opinion? What's your thoughts on this matter concerning the right place to worship? And in verses 21 through 24, Jesus gets very specific and he says to this woman, you've been taught wrong. What your father, what your grandfather's taught you is wrong. Your worship is misguided. It's false worship. And there is a new day coming. And when that day and time comes, and now it has come, it is now, for God the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. It's not about location. It's about worshiping God sincerely from the heart, guided by truth, by the scriptures. And it doesn't really matter where you worship. I've been in some powerful worship services in prisons, in jails. I've been in some powerful worship services in Africa. People sitting in little chairs with wooden floors. And the only instrument they had was some old drums made out of buckets. It doesn't matter where. We worship the Lord from our hearts guided by truth, guided from the scriptures. And God the Father is seeking that from everyone. And she finally, in verse 25, begins to understand. And she says, you know, sir, I believe that the Messiah, our Savior, is coming, the Christ. And when he comes, when he arrives on the scene, he's going to make everything clear for us. And verse 26, Jesus says, ma'am, I am the Messiah. I am your Savior. I am the Christ. Isn't that good? That's the opening scene. Jesus is living on mission, witnessing, engaging others with the truth, even Samaritans, even a woman in that day, which was unheard of. Now, quickly, before considering our text for application in the middle, let's, that was a close opening scene. Let's just take a moment and look at the closing scene. What happens after Jesus interacts with this Samaritan woman? Read with me verse 39 through verse 42, four verses. And it says, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him, Jesus, because how? Why did they believe in the Lord Jesus? Because of this woman's testimony, because of the word of the woman who testified and said, this man, he told me all that I ever did. 
And when the Samaritans had come to him, Jesus, they urged, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed with there two more days, verse 21, and many more, many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Isn't that great? What's the result of Jesus interacting with this Samaritan woman, steering the conversation to him? She gets saved. The Bible is clear. She understands her sin. She understands that God was seeking a relationship with her, and Jesus was the way to know God. And her life has changed. She then is enthused about it, pretty excited about it. She's met the Messiah her life, she's been saved, and she goes back telling her story to everyone who lived there in the city, her friends, family members. She's intentional, spiritually intentional with her actions, with her words. Tells everyone how she met Christ. He knew everything about me and then begins to urge others to come to him as well. And John doesn't provide a written record of the interaction that Jesus had with these Samaritans. He doesn't record it. We don't know exactly what Jesus said to these people that came out from the city of Sychar, but they believe. They hear the word. They believed. That's the first section. Jesus interacts with Samaritans. And the opening he interacts with this woman of Samaria. In the closing, he interacts with the people of the city, this Samaritan city called Sychar. And then we get to our text. And so a few observations. I'll make some application and we'll close. In verses 27 through 30 of what we read, the Bible is very clear. The disciples marvel. You see that? They marvel. What do they marvel over? They marvel that Jesus is talking with this woman, this Samaritan woman. And as she is talking, interacting with Jesus, they evidently come back from their food run and they hear some of it, they see some of it. She confesses to him, I'm looking for the Christ, looking for the Messiah. And with confidence says, I know he's coming. And when he comes, all things are to become clear. And when Jesus says, I am the one you're looking for, I am the Christ, the disciples probably heard that. And they marvel that he's talking with this woman. Because in their minds, first, they, Jesus should have never been in Samaria to begin with. They had their way, they wouldn't even be there. And then second, which was even greater, that he was conversing with a Samaritan woman. They marvel because what Jesus was doing, talking with, interacting, devoting time to this Samaritan woman was a waste of time. A waste of time. Oh, sure, earlier in John chapter 3, when a highly educated man named Nicodemus came to him, a religious man, a, a good Jew, a Pharisee. When he came to Jesus, that was fine that Jesus spent time with Nicodemus. That was a positive use of time. But not this woman. It was beneath them. He should have never interacted with her. It was worthless. Over the years, I've come to realize that, and I believe that it's because God has placed this within me, but I have a strong sense of justice. When I see people mistreated, neglected, it, it disturbs me. When I see or hear things that demean people or devalue people, it, it bothers me. coming from people who, for whatever reasons, have considered themselves to be a cut above other people. 
a little bit better than other people. Many and I tried to drill in our kids' minds and to help them to understand as they grew up, you, you are not better than anyone. And if you're better looking or have a greater intellect or have more physical talent or ability, any of those things that you have that would cause you possibly to think that you're better than someone else, all of that that you have has been given to you by God. And instead of feeling better than someone, you ought to feel like just God, thank you for the gifts that you've given to me. Help me to use them for your glory and your purposes to love you and to love others as myself. I think it's a very ugly, very unbecoming quality of anyone who follows Jesus to have an attitude that they're better than some other person. And I hope that's the same for all of us. And at the end of verse 20, 27, it's very telling. I want you to read what it says. These disciples have some questions as they see this and they hear this. You see that in verse 27? They marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, no one asked him, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They don't do anything. In other words, they're wondering, what is he doing? <laughs> What are you doing? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Why are you talking with her? And it's kind of sad with all of their questions that they're wondering, they're thinking about. They never ask him. You ever hear a teacher say, if you sit in a class, you ever hear a teacher say the, the only bad question, the only silly question is the one that's never asked? The point is the disciples should have asked. <laughs> When you have ideas, when you have questions, instead of going to another person and sharing your thoughts and asking them questions to explain things, you just keep it to yourself and then make assumptions and draw your own conclusions about them. My hope is that we could all get to a place where we would welcome new ideas and welcome suggestions and welcome questions from people. Do you remember Jesus saying to his disciples, you don't put new wine into old wineskins because if you do the old wineskins that are brittle, are brittle and not pliable, they won't be able to handle the new wine. The new wine will begin to foam and continue to work and it will burst the old wineskins and all the new wine will be lost. So you don't put new wine into old wineskins. Sometimes I wonder if God is working to provide new wine for his church that we need to be careful not to refuse it because it's not my idea, because it was his idea or her idea. Therefore, it can't be of God. If it didn't come from me, if it wasn't my thought, then it can't be of the Lord. Let me ask yourself, ask yourself a couple of questions. Be honest with yourself as you think through these questions. You know, concerning it's got to be me. It's got to be my way or the highway. I want to control. I ask yourself these questions. Am I a controlling person? At home? At work? In my marriage? In my family? In my church? Do I have to be in control? Do things have to be my way? Am I open to other people questioning me and how I'm doing things or why things are done? Do I become defensive? Do I become dismissive if another person disagrees with me? And then further, will I go and work behind the scenes making phone calls and contacting everybody else to manipulate them to make sure that everybody agrees with me and so that their idea gets rejected and shot down? That's manipulation. And it happens in the church, not this church. It happens in all churches. It's the stuff that disgusts me. The disciples are full of ideas and opinions, biases, full of questions. But in the text, they never bring them to Jesus. And in verse 28, the woman leaves. I would propose that she left with a sense of urgency, forgot about her water pot, went back into the city and said to the people, the men there, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? She knew he was the Christ. And because of her urgent persistence, 
her confidence and sincerity, she led other people to Jesus. She's like the man that Jesus describes. My favorite parable in the Bible, Matthew 13, 44. A man just got up, went to work one day, had no idea what God was going to do in his life that day. Plowing in a field, that steel plow, hit something buried beneath the surface, sounded like metal. He stops plowing, begins to dig, and unearths buried treasure. Well, the field didn't belong to him, did it? And so he, in order to possess the the, the treasure, he thought, I'm going to buy the field. So he goes home with a sense of urgency, and he sells everything that he has, raises money to go back to buy that field from whoever he was working for. Why? Because once the field was his, he would possess the treasure, buried treasure that he came across. And with urgency, Jesus says, he sells everything. He's worth, it's, it's worth anything and everything, to lay down everything in order to possess this treasure. Second observation about this interaction with the disciples, and this is really the heart, verses 31 through 34. The disciples of Jesus had no sense of spiritual urgency. Think of verse 31. They bring him some food, and, he, and you can tell what they're urgent about. <laughs> it says they urged Jesus to eat, verse 31. They urge him to eat. Why? Because they're focused on their stomachs. And Jesus is focused on another kind of food. In verse 32, he says, fellas, I have some food to eat that you don't know about. A food that you don't yet understand. In other words, the hunger that I have in me is a little different from the hunger that you have in you. It is a hunger that's far greater than physical food. A hunger that's far greater than physical hunger. You remember in Matthew 5 when Jesus begins to provide those beatitudes? You know what he's doing there in those beatitudes? You know them. Blessed are those mourn who meek. And he describes, he's described, I've said it this way. If you cut a true follower of Jesus Christ in half, you cut them open, this is what they're going to bleed. This is the attitudes. These are the characteristics that you'll find in the heart, in the life of one who devoutly follows Christ. And he says one of them is they will be blessed. They will be happy. Satisfied are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The disciples don't get it. They look around each other. Verse 33, did he already eat some? Did you give him something to eat? I, I didn't see it. And they're responding to their question. Jesus says, this is what satisfies me. This is what fills me. Doing the will of my Father, that's why I'm here, and to finish his work. Wouldn't that be great to have to put on your tombstone? Did the will of his Father finish the work? Why are you alive? Why does God give you breath? Why are you here? Where do you find satisfaction? What, what fulfills you? What satisfies you? What is it that you're trying to finish before your life ends? What is it that you want to get done? Jesus tells his guys, fellas, I have a hunger. I have a thirst, I have a desire to do what the Father tells me to do and to finish, to finish well. Do you remember Paul's words? For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is near. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. Now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but to all who have longed for his appearing. And so here's the appeal. This is the application. Verse 35. It all comes down to this. Jesus says to his disciples, Do you not say... Isn't this what you're saying? The King James says, say not. In other words, stop saying this. Stop thinking this. 
What were they saying? What were they thinking? Look at verse 35. They come back and see all of this spiritual work going on, and they say, there's still four months, and then comes the harvest. What were they saying? What were they thinking? There's no hurry. What's the big deal? There's plenty of time. Let's eat lunch. And Jesus says to those brothers, lift up your eyes. Look around you. Look at the fields. Look at the people. Look at these Samaritans. Look what is happening. Look how God is at work. They are ripe unto harvest. They're being saved right now. What are you knuckleheads waiting for? That's what he says. Maybe not the knucklehead part, but I want you to see something. Do you, do you still have your Bible open? Would you, would you go back earlier to John? I want to point something out, and then we'll close. Would you go back with me to the beginning of John chapter 4, verse 4? Would you, would you look at verse 4 with me there? Read it with me. But he, Jesus, needed to, he needed to go north through Samaria. Needed. It's a pretty strong word. It's an imperative. The Revised Standard said he had to go there. The Amplified Version says it was necessary. The King James translates it, he must needs. So traveling north to get to Galilee and passing through the Samaritan region was essential. It was a must. It was necessary. It had to be done. Jesus knew, he had this sense, that his heavenly father wanted him to go to Samaria. He had this sense, this urging from God that that's what he needed to do. What about you? Would you say that you are living with a sense of spiritual urgency? And I'm relatively confident, pretty sure that every one of us here today, this morning, who know Christ, every one of us here today, I'm very certain, has something that we know God wants us to do. Enjoyed by the Holy Spirit, something that we know, an awareness of something that we know God wants us to do. If we follow Jesus' example, we're going to gain some insights on how to live with spiritual urgency. It begins why Jesus knew and loved the Father. Spiritual urgency comes from being in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. Jesus kept the Father's commands. He was obedient. He lived with a clear sense of purpose. And this next one's a big one. Not all of us have gotten this figured out yet. He invested his life in others. He invested in his disciples. I hope that all of us, as we walk with God, have fellowship with him, as we live with a sense of purpose and a desire to obey and keep his commands, we have an understanding that we do it in community with other Christians. So let me close. What is it that God is calling you to do? What is it that God is calling you to do? For some of you, it's to be saved. Today, God is saying you need to humble yourself and confess your sins to me, that you've sinned against me. And if you'll ask me, I'll forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Today, the first step is to be saved, to be in a right relationship with God. For others of you who you know you're a Christian, what is God calling you to do? How is he calling you to serve, to teach, to join a Sunday school class, to get connected with other believers? For some of you, God today may be calling you to go and apologize to someone. Pride. You sinned against someone and you won't go to that other person and apologize. To reconcile. 
God's calling some of you to give. You've never surrendered your finances to God. And he's calling you to give, and you need to give to the Lord, and you know that's what something in your life you need to do or to change or to repent from some sin. You might be here this morning and you're struggling with alcohol and you've struggled with alcohol for years and you know good and well that God wants you to lay that bottle down and you're resisting. Someday, someday in the future, someday later in the road, down the road, to seek forgiveness from someone, to tell someone you're sorry. Some of you need to retire. You got enough money in the bank, you need to retire and serve the Lord. Church needs you, and you, you know, and you know that God's wanting you to do it, but you're just, you want him more and more and more. Are you guilty of being passive? God's calling you to be obedient and you keep saying four months, four months, six months, next year, year after that, then, then God, then, then I'll get things in my life and my relationship right with you. Some of you know you need to go talk to someone about their relationship with Christ to witness them. You just need to go to their home and sit down with them across and say, brother, I need to, sister, I want to talk to you. Can we talk a minute? Meet them for a cup of coffee, and you need to reach out to them, and you know you should, and you just, four months, four months. Jesus is saying to his disciples, wake up. Wake up. You're wasting time. You're giving the Lord your second best, your third best, fourth best, fifth best. Everything else is coming before God and the way he's called you to live and serve. I invite Anita and Don to come. I invite you to pray with me. Let's bow together in prayer. Anita, would you just play softly? Let me pray with you. Father, these are sacred moments. Time of response, time of worship to your, the voice of your Holy Spirit. Have your way. Have your way in my life, the life of your church. Father, for that man, that woman today who is here and they're not saved. God, would you help them to overcome their fear and to step out and to trust you and come today and say, Brother Charlie, I need Jesus. I want to be saved. I want to follow the Lord. I've been waiting long enough. God, would you speak to all of us? God, maybe we need to come and kneel before you and confess that, God, I have been wasteful. I have been selfish and self-centered. I have neglected you. I've neglected your work. I've neglected your church. And God, forgive me. And today, I want to do better, God, by your grace. And so I come. Would you stand with me? God's speaking to you, you come. Just, this is your time to just to worship the Lord in response, however he might be speaking to you. And if you'd like to come and talk to me or someone about being a Christian, I'll be here. Just come and say, Brother Charlie, I want to accept Christ. You come.